friends and listeners got another special one for you today. It's with Eric Reese. He has spent 20 years in the startup ecosystem, has started multiple companies um, with tens of millions of customers between them, written multiple New York Times bestselling books, and is one of the great startup sages out here in San Francisco. He's also a big reason why I started this podcast. And when I was thinking about the project, a lunch with him kind of activated the idea. All of this is to say that his episode, episode three, which is one of the most listened to episodes on the podcast, wasn't nearly enough time with him. So we've gone ahead and recorded a part two for you. Enjoy this extension of our conversations on founder psychology, what forces limit and inhibit our mental health, what forces and practices can help invest in our mental health, and what his nine-year road into his current idea has been like. Below the Line, as always, is brought to you by Playcast Media. Want the easiest way to set up a professional premium podcast in your home or office? Go to playcastmedia.com and get their premium podcast in a box delivered right to your door. Everything you need for a premium podcast, all the equipment, all the info that guides you on setting it up, everything you need. I'm recording this on Playcast equipment right now and uh, gotta say, sound pretty darn good. It is like having a professional sound studio in your home or office and it is basically one click to buy and boom, one click to start recording. Basically that simple. So check them out, playcastmedia.com. That's playcastmedia.com and tell them James sent you. Now, let's get into it with Eric Reese, part do. This is Below the Line. We're live. Eric, part two. Welcome back. Thank you very much. It is uh, exciting to have you back. Oh, my pleasure. Especially with how well first episode uh, that we did together is, has done. People have, have really resonated with. I think it's the way I've been able to, to um, describe it is you have a great, and I think a, a lot of, a lot of uh, founders you know, think about these topics so much, rarely get a chance to discuss them. But you also have not only thought about them, but written about them extensively. And I mean, your whole mission is basically changing how startups are, are built. Um, I wanted to kick this off by talking about LTSE. Okay. And the massively ambitious idea that you're working on right now that is so, it's one, I think one of the m- most important ideas that people are working on around the world. Uh, that's oh, thank how, you for saying that. That's how much uh, I believe in it. But I wanted to zoom out and just first get a backdrop of that phrase of changing the way startups are are built. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been doing this for almost two decades. What did you see as a need uh, that needed to be needed to be addressed and changed? Well, gosh. So there's there's several things. I mean, the first really simple version of that is just. I spent a lot of years in entrepreneurship without really understanding what it was. And whenever I would try to help have people under help like whenever I would try to understand it, whenever I ask people about it, get advice, a lot of the advice really did not make sense. It was either um what you know, like the the dollhouse theory of a startup, which is basically just like a startup is just a tiny miniaturized version of a big company. This might be a Steve Blank original. 
where you know you say, okay, well, a big company has uh, departments. We better have departments, just little mini departments. <laughs> and uh, you know, uh, big companies have OKRs, so we got to have OKRs. A big company has, you know, internal politics. We got to have budgeting. We got to have so so like there's kind of this like mimicry. Uh, and then, you know, there's like a lot of like general management techniques that people would try to use. So, you know, when I, I had plenty of people who, who taught me entrepreneurship as, you know, you got to build, a, what was it called? A product requirements document, PRD. Mm -hmm. And then you build a technical requirements document. And then you build that, those constitute the specification for what the product will be. And then you got to build the design document. Then you got to, and it's like, you could easily be six, 12, 18 months in and you haven't built anything yet. You're just planning and, and you know, in, investigating and preparing to take your shot. And, you know, there are big company situations where that makes sense, although I've learned since that less than people think. But that really goes badly in startups. And I kept seeing it over and over again where this, this um, constant need to experiment, iterate, and adjust to reality, people are not wired for that. And so I couldn't really understand why that was the way it was. It just everyone that was like people just tell me, well, that's how it is. That's why I learned in my MBA program. That's what I saw at this other big company. That's you know that was kind of one one source of knowledge about startups. And then the rest was all these just just so stories. So you say, well, um, you know, my my, my favorite questions as a, as like technical co-founder is like, is it time to release the product or should we wait, make it more perfect? And when you put it that way. I mean, almost everyone's like, let's just make it more perfect. But if I had this opposite intuition that if we wait to make it more perfect, it actually will wind up being less perfect because we'll be out of alignment with what our customers want and the extra stuff we load on it might not be. You know, so like I, that was down to rehash lean startup, but that was kind of always my intuition. We should go faster, be more scientific, get more feedback. But you couldn't have like an analytical conversation with people about that. People would say, well, you know, that's not how Steve Jobs does it. Steve Jobs did it like this. And, you know, and I, I was very flip. I would just be like, yeah, but Steve Jobs also wore a black turtleneck. So do I need to wear a black turtleneck? And I right, you can so easily confuse sure, the, how, the like, leaves for actually the roots of the yeah, tree. How do you know? And so like, I, I, here are the following questions I had about all this advice. And it wasn't just Steve Jobs, although people love that. You know, people would do what tell you, Jeff Bezos did this thing, or, you know, Mark Benioff did this thing, or I, don't, I can't remember. Any given time, there's like certain entrepreneurs that are like super hot, everyone's excited about. And you know, there's these stories and legends of how they got it done. And I, my, my questions were always like, okay, first of all, how do we know that what worked for him will work for me? You're, you're telling me Steve Jobs is like singular genius. I'm not a singular genius. I'm just a just a regular person. So how do I know that maybe he only works for him? Well, how do I know what worked in his industry will work in my industry? We don't make the same right. product. Hardware versus software. Sure, whatever. Massive difference. How do I know that what worked then works now? You know, that was a long time ago. Or are you talking about the thing he just did? Well, after he was already super famous? And ran a multi-billion dollar company like is that really the same situation so how do i know that will work in his situation so so there's all these differences and then so how are you supposed to figure out which things apply and which things don't apply and then then you get to the really hard questions like well how do you know that really happened right well, i was who, just about to who say told how me, you, were you there did you see did you witness it with your well people were like well no but i heard it from a reliable source it's like right oh, i read it in the press read it in or, the press or read know. it in the in the biography and and yeah it's i you know this well, from the first episode, you you mentioned there was the Harvard. I think it was, I think it was Harvard Business School that mm -hmm. had a case study on your own company. You're like, this isn't, this isn't yeah. accurate. This isn't, and yet it was it was so tempting for them to create this narrative that fit what they were being, what yeah, they were being yeah. taught. 
So then, then okay, let's say, let's say you did have it on good authority that really happened. Then the question is, how do you know that what happened next was caused by what he did? Maybe he succeeded in spite of that behavior, not because of that behavior, or maybe it's just a total coincidence. He, you know, like, and then and people still fight over this. I mean, because Steve Jobs was just a, you know, such a jerk to his employees and stuff. People ask, does that mean I have to be a jerk to my employees? And you know, would he have been more like so? So, and we don't know. We none of us were there, and it's hard to disentangle cause and effect. And then, anyway, so this, so like between kind of standard received wisdom about big companies, and then all these like legends and myths about startups, I was like, where can I get reliable information about what actually works and doesn't work? And how do I? How am I supposed to sort through? all this stuff to make it more than just posturing and BS, you know, when I'm negotiating with my with my co-founders and my employees and my investors. And we need a framework for, so I was like very hungry for something different just to make sense of my own experience. And long before I ever thought I would write about it, that was, I never had that aspiration when I was in the trenches. I was just like, I need a way to talk about this. I need an inconceptual vocabulary to make sense of it myself. You know, I, I don't know if I died or tell you this story, Edit out if I already tell the story, but but my I basically became the explainer in chief in one of my startups. No, no. Okay, so we built a startup where. Plus, you're such a good storyteller. I'd leave your stories in there, even if it is in a repeat. repeat. Yeah. Oh, no, it's the oh god, that's terrible. No, no, no. no okay, uh, thank you. But yeah, no, we have right. not heard this. All right, explainer so so explainer. So, so basically, um, I had this. You know, I came. What, what, so let me let me actually back up. When I was just like a cog in the wheel. So like I I used to, you know. I was like an intern at a big public company as a kid. And, you know, and then I did a startup in my dorm room. And then like the first, in the first startup I joined in Silicon Valley, I was like employee 30. So not, by no means an important person. Anyway, whenever I was not the person in charge, uh, I always felt it was really easy to advocate for radical ideas because I knew that they would get watered down before they would be implemented. So like, if, you know, we used to, remember when we used to put the, the, year of, of, the year the product came out in the name of the product, number Windows ninety five, right, right. right, Office two thousand, right. Yeah. So, like, we're not releasing those products very often. Like, literally, the year it came out, so like annual release. So, if you're in an annual and multi annual release cycle, and I'm like, we should release like every month. People, are like, that's crazy. But like, if I if I just sit there, like every month, every month, every month, maybe I can get them down to like twice a year, or like quarterly, right? Like, so like, my, I'm gonna whatever I advocate for is gonna be people are gonna compromise with me, and then if I get them down to quarterly, I'm gonna be like, let's do it every week. And then I'm going to be like, let's do it every day. And just say, whatever I'm advocating for, I don't have to worry. I'm not responsible. You know, other people are going to make the decision and they're going to, they're going to balance out what I'm advocating for with what someone else is advocating for. We want it with some kind of lame compromise. Uh -huh. So you don't have to be very principled. You just advocate for what you want. And so somebody else's problem. Well, when it was, when I all of a sudden was in charge as a technical co-founder, I remember being like, okay, guys, I think we should release every day. And, and people would be like, okay, are you sure? And I was like, uh oh. No, no, I'm definitely not sure. Wait, wait, where's the big boss who's going to come in and compromise? Oh, no, there's nobody else. Or they'd be like, okay, if, if every day, why not every hour? Heck, why don't we do it every five minutes? Why even wait? And, and I had to be like, oh, I better, I better, first of all, I better figure out what I think about this stuff. So all of a sudden, I had to like really get serious about what would I actually believe? Like, should we have unit tests or no tests? Should we be on this platform or that platform? Like, you know, I, I, I built... I physically built our first computers, our first servers. This is before a cloud and everything. So like I, I built our first internal server. Where I, I get to pick the source control. I had to set it up myself. I bought the hard drive at Fry's and plugged it into the, I mean, I did, but from the bare metal, had to do everything. That made every choice. A true CTO. Yeah, yeah. I really had to make the choice. I still have in my garage somewhere that our, our very first load balancer finally burned out and our ops team, you know, years later gave it to me as a gift. So it's, I still have it somewhere. It's a trophy. So anyway, so I had to make decisions with great 
lasting consequences with insufficient information and be responsible for them. That was freaky for me. But that wasn't the hardest part. The hardest part was then later, we would hire people who were like more experienced than me. I was always trying to hire people smarter than me. Uh, founder just asked me, call me up for advice. He's 22 and he's like, how do, I, how do I deal with people who are smarter than me on my team? I said, at least you're asking the right question. Good for you, right? Get your ego in check because it's gonna be hard. So here's what would happen. So we would, we practice something called, now, now we would call it continuous deployment. So we, I was joking about every day, every minute, but we literally would put the code into production as fast as we wrote it with a cluster immune system and all this automation to make sure that it was safe. So it was not a sloppy, it was a very disciplined process. And yet it was a very radical in 2004. So much so that we would hire people. You'd hire someone who's like a 10-year veteran who'd been at Yahoo or just some you know, big company, big, serious person. You'd get them to join. And they, they would, on you know, their very first day, say, hi, welcome to the company. You're going to deploy something to production today. And some people would react to that with terror, like, oh, whoa, 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 oh, wait, what do you mean? You can't do that. We need months of testing and quality assurance and whatever. And, and they would say, like, what if I take the site down? And we say, listen, our, our philosophy here is if you can take the site down on your first day, then shame on us for making it so easy for you to make a mistake. And Toyota mm -hmm. Production doesn't call it mistake-proofing. Um, and some people would be terrified and you'd have to get them over their fear, but other people would be outraged. Listen, kid, this is not how it's done. I'm a 25-year veteran of the whatever. Uh, let me tell you, uh, this is, you know, you need to have a technical requirements documented to have this. And it took a long time for me to learn to have the confidence to say, listen, with all due respect, even though you're older than me and smarter than me and better than me in every way, you're taller than me and better looking, right now, you work for me. So we're going to try it my way first. It was like the green eggs and ham strategy. I think if you try it my way, I think you'll like it. And then we'll have a discussion about the best way. And if you want to teach me something at that point, okay, but first you got to learn my way. You're coming into my company and do it. And to learn to do that in a non-antagonistic way that did not have a person like spontaneously quit, which did not always go very well. It took me a long, long time to learn how to have that conversation. So that worked for a while. Then I could kind of get people to like try it and they'll like it. And very few people who have ever been converted to the system ever convert back. I mean, it's just, you can feel the productivity of it. It's way better. And that's like, this is kind of how lean startup has always been. Like once you get people to really try it, they don't go back. It works. But then I had another problem. People would say to me, well, why does it work? And I'm like, I don't know. It just seems like the better way. Well, that wasn't such a big deal with people that work for me. But then we would raise money. Now, this isn't so common anymore, but in those days, you raise money from like a Sand Hill Road venture capital firm. They would send their technical due diligence guy to evaluate your software to see if it was good. Yeah, we, we had that. You've yeah. been through that. Yeah, so maybe it still, it still happens. I, I Maybe it just hasn't happened to me in a while. So the, like, basically, if you're the technical co-founder of a startup, you really only have one job. Your one job is to make sure that you pass technical due diligence and you can cash the check, okay? This is right. not a hard job. And I was too young and naive and stupid that I didn't understand what my job was. I thought my job was to explain how our thing worked to this gray-haired veteran of the valley. So the gray-haired veteran would show up and they'd say, listen, kid, I don't think this is how it's done. You got to have technical requirements documents and whatever. And like, I think 99% of people smarter than me would have been like, yes, sir. Thank you for that great advice. We're going to get, as soon as we cash the check, we're going to get right on that. Whatever. That's like, you know, that's like entrepreneurship since time on. That's, since that's time the memorial. help we need. That is that's exactly what we want think from how, you like, all. Uh, The classic entrepreneur move is like, look how much money we're making now. With your advice, think how much more money we could make. So you're right. We're doing everything wrong and we're still doing great. So with right. your advice, how much more valuable is yeah. the company? Yeah, but right. I didn't have that savvy. I didn't have the sophistication. I would say, no, no, actually, sir, you're wrong. The detailed 
knowledge and wisdom you have accumulated over decades of your career has been superseded by this new and better way of working. And why don't you just come over here and see the evidence for yourself? Now, if you know anything about human psychology, you should be laughing right now because like, who wants to see the evidence of the thing how that they learned, how it. wrong they, I mean, right, right this, this did not go well. And, and how I, old were you at this time? I must have been uh, 25, maybe, in my 20s, certainly, and, and talking to people much older and not very good at it. You know, I didn't understand how to talk about this stuff at all. And it went badly. Like, I'm, I, I look back at it now, like my co-founders have uh, had a miraculous level of patience for me. Like, they put up with so much crap. Like, we failed tech due diligence. There were rounds that we lost. That we lost the deal because I was too stubborn and I wanted to fight with the guy. Like, we were executives we tried to recruit and I was too stubborn to, to do whatever. So, like, but it was a Darwinian process. I had to learn how to explain myself to people who were skeptical, to employees, to investors, to partners, to all kinds. I was just like over and over and over again. And I couldn't just say, try it, you'll like it. I couldn't say, come look at the evidence. People wanted to understand why. And that was really the origin for me of having a lot of curiosity about like actually wanting to answer that question for myself. I didn't know. It just seemed obviously right to me, but I didn't know why. And so I started to read everything I could get my hands on. You know, I had great mentors and, and you know, I asked them a lot of questions. So like I wanted to become educated about business and startups and how it works. I read, I read every, basically every book that's ever been written on startups at that time, which was easy to do because there just weren't that many. It's hard to believe now. There weren't that many. You know, I remember like there was Guy Kawasaki's book. Steve Blank's book was still like an Art underground phenomenon. Art of the Start. Yeah. Uh, Kawasaki's book, there was Crossing the Chasm, there's The Innovator's Dilemma, but those are both written from the point of view of big company, uh, big company audience. Um, there were like a bunch of like super technical academic books about entrepreneurship, but like it was not a lot and very few addressed to this question of like, how am I supposed to answer these questions? Like, how am I supposed to know what to do? Which customers do I listen to? When do I pivot? We didn't even have the concept of a pivot, right? So we didn't, we were right. missing critical concepts and and not to just uh, take anything away from guy kawasaki amazing storyteller writer and was was there for much of apple but even there you can easily spot you know just scientifically how limited that perspective is if you're employee 22 at so apple it's a different thing yeah and you become apple one not knowing what it was really like at two and three in the actual start but even more you're on this massive rocket ship how do you know, to your point a few few minutes ago, how do you know what you succeed because of or in spite of? Yeah. And, and listen, I, I mean, I, and, and you can't denigrate the books that were there. At least they were there. Like, right. like, it was like a lifeline. It was like, at least somebody's talking about this. Like, thank God. Right. Uh, and I'm sure your, your listeners will write in to be like, you forgot this one, you forgot that. I'm sure there are many that I've, that I've forgotten. But it was, it was hard to do. So, so I branched out from entrepreneurship books to management books. I read about Toyota. I read about, you know, I read Jack Welch's book. I read, I read anything I get my hands on. I read Michael Porter's like five, four, all the strategy books. I read everything. I was a voracious reader and I was desperate. You know, it's like classic early adopter behavior. I was desperate for an answer. So for example, in, this, in Michael Porter's book, it's a great chapter where he, he briefly, he's gone through hundreds of pages of strategy analysis. And then he's like, when, once you've adopted a strategy, now keep in mind, a strategy is really more like a hypothesis than a statement of fact. And make sure you put in place a rigorous process for testing this hypothesis to make sure your analysis is correct. And I'm like, finally, the thing I want to know about, because in a startup, I go through like 12 strategies a day. I have no idea. Like, There's going to be now a whole chapter or maybe even a whole section of the book about how to do that. No, that's end of chapter, moving on to a new idea, back to strategy analysis. Like it's unaddressed. It's not part of that 
it's not part of the work. And that's just that comes up over and over and over again. Like in one of the famous lean manufacturing books, there's this wonderful chapter where they talk about how if you're going to enlist employees in transformation, you have to promise them that you won't lay them off. Because otherwise, they're not going to help you. It's like very obvious. You have to show them you have a long term philosophy of long term thinking. You have, they have to believe that you're going to be there. You're going to see it through, and you're going to thrive. But if you're running a factory and you do a lean transformation, you'll generally be able to produce the same amount of stuff with half the manpower and half the space. That's why it's actually originally was called lean manufacturing. It's like magic. The same factory shrinks mm-hmm. and produces more. It's like a miracle. So then, in order to not lay anybody off, you have to quickly build new products to take advantage of this extra capacity that you free up. And so you have to promise your employees that you'll invest in those new products. And, and, and I remember there's a chapter where it's like, and so therefore, in this case study, they had to make sure that they figured out new products to sell to increase the capacity, and they did. End of chapter. And I'm like, great, now will be the chapter on, nope, moving on. Right? Like, right. How do you know what the new product should be? Well, if you're in a ball bearing factory, like Alfred Sloan was in the 20s, it's not that hard to develop new products. It's more ball bearing, bearings in more sizes and more, like more. Right. Like, it's not the kind of entrepreneurship that we're dealing with where it's like, today, the most contemporary entrepreneurship is just, is this going to work at all? Is anyone going to want complete, this crazy thing? I what? call it like, it's basically like technology wildcatting. Yeah. You're just drilling holes and you have no idea. As it's, a, you know, being from Texas, oil wildcatting. That's funny. And, and it's, you have no idea whether it's going to be a gusher or it's going to, the well's going to be dry. And you might have an absolute behemoth on your hands with this first drill site, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything for the next drill site that you, uh, that you try your hand at. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of, fa- even, and no matter how good your analysis is, there's just a lot of factors out of your control. Uh, you know, early is dead, right? So you have you have to get the timing right, and just like it's it's very 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 difficult. Mm-hmm. But it's it's and so then you know then I was started reading um, like biographies of famous entrepreneurs from like from early early twentieth century entrepreneurs, like the biography of Henry Ford, and the, you know I was just like I'm dying for information. And eventually, I started to piece together the problem. You know, and and like I said, I had had lot a lot of theories that I could I could stand on the shoulders of. But I was like we we're we're not building startups the right way. It's not, eventually I was like, it's not, it's not me. I'm not the crazy one. We just haven't figured this out yet. So, so then I was like, okay, then, then I, and this is again, not with any intention of writing about it or publishing or anything. I was just, I need to know what the new model is going to be so that I can use it myself and I can make my own company more successful. And it wasn't until later that I started trying to like tell other people about it and, 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 you know, and, and, uh, and share it. But yeah, that's that was how that was how my interest got started in changing how startups are built, and you know then that that led into so many more. I mean, it's just like that was like talk about a gusher that you you drill into and it just it takes over your life. But it's been uh, it's been a really fun ride since then. Well, and and fast forwarding to today um, with LTSE, long term stock exchange. Um, do you mind telling a little bit about? Um, I wouldn't, I can give my version of why it's uh, so so powerful, um, but I would love to hear your version and and then maybe even two today in the momentous um, press announcement from two weeks about two weeks ago. Yeah, right? yeah, that's right. Um, a pretty huge stake in the ground for for this going from this really ambitious, pretty crazy idea of a new stock exchange for the companies being built in the 21st century to a stake in the ground of, whoa, this is actually, this feels like 
this could happen. Yeah, it's been uh, it's it's been an intense journey and and a very inspiring one. You know, with it certainly with its setbacks. And yeah, you're catching me at a good time because we just had this uh, this uh, approval. And for those that have not had the experience, there's something really deeply moving about you speak an idea out loud, and then years later, it's almost like the you know the United States government in all its majesty and power like conjures it up from the depths. And so people, I think, have this vision of like like it, like the lost city of Atlantis being like this this beautiful marble <laughs> building is conjured into existence after so many people said it couldn't be done. So. This is an idea. It's funny, it's funny we're talking about the the prehistory of lean startup because this is an idea that comes out of uh, me writing about lean startup originally. So when I was writing the book, so now we're going back to 2010, when I decided, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna publish this book. I better eat my own dog food. I better use lean startup ideas in the development of the book. Otherwise, I'm a big hypocrite. Plus, they work, so that'd be more effective. So I was on the road constantly that year. I was doing workshops. I had developed so many ways to test the ideas, you know, how to different chapters, test chapters, test readers, test this. I was really like workshopping it and trying to make sure like, okay, it's not enough just to have a good idea. It has to be packaged appropriately. It has to be explained appropriately. You know, I had all these years of experience, but it's one thing when you're sitting next to someone and explaining something to them. Now I have to do it in written form and I have to make it engaging. And so I was really working it. And in these workshops, I would try to explain to people that our ambition as a movement, Lean Startup was really like bubbling and becoming a movement at that time, was not just to like help people build more quick to flip, you know, companies that just get sold or whatever. Our goal is to really build new, big, impactful institutions. You know, we want to build the next Toyota. And so we got to have a long-term philosophy. We got to have, you know, as I was explaining stuff about Toyota production system and the importance of philosophy of long-term thinking, we got to have, you know, we got to put vision at the center of our movement so that these techniques are not about just like throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. It's about having a system for sustaining in belief in a vision over a long period of time during the proverbial flat part of the hockey stick, all that stuff. So we're going on and on about that. But I would always get this question, okay, hotshot, you're telling us to create these long-term things, but you're also telling us to build a venture-backed company and take it public. But isn't, aren't the public markets the most short-term environment on the planet? And is it really possible to have a long-term orientation if you're a public company? Do you mind explaining that a little bit more for listeners? Sure. So today, I mean, and this is, I didn't, I was no expert at this time. I've learned a lot since then, but even then, I think everybody knows. If you've ever worked in a public company, you've ever been a middle manager in a public company, uh, you'll all know that most public companies, no matter how innovative and bold and how great culture they have at the beginning, they inevitably, I wouldn't say inevitably, but they, the vast majority of the time, they eventually become a creature of the quarter. So the whole company is organized around producing predictable results quarter after quarter. Um, they call it the beat and raise game. So, so you you give guidance, analysts form a consensus number of how much money you're supposed to make that quarter and your goal is to beat that. So of course you do as much as you can to sandbag the expectation. Your goal is to beat it by one penny, not miss it by one penny. And that's considered virtuous because it shows that you are in control of your situation and um, that there's high accountability for management. So there's just a lot of forces that conspire to have employees and the whole company fixated on these very short-term metrics. Most people in the company have stock options that are short-term oriented or bonuses that are, that are structured around these metrics. So there's like a whole system for making sure that everyone in the company cares a lot about it. And I now remember, you- I remember going from startup to a company getting ready to go public. And, and I probably heard this before, but just entering 
the walls and seeing these these words Q1, Q2. Got to do this by the end of Q2, yeah. end of Q1, end of Q3, and and being just so taken aback by like these are arbitrary three months. Of what, it, what you can build something great in a weekend, you know. And my my backdrop was building things great in you know five days, thirty days, twenty two days, when it, however long it took. However long, it and took. then it's like nope. Now it's on quarters, three month stints, and I I imagine it's because of this downstream effect of just as you get larger, that's how you are going to be assessed mm-hmm. every quarter. Yeah, and it and it cascades out from the public markets into the private markets because then you have companies are getting ready to go public and they want to see them see attractive to to the public markets. They want to be attractive to investors who care a lot about public. So like, it it has this, this influence, and it's not all negative. And people sometimes misunderstand this. There is an operational discipline that is needed to make a company large. Like coordinating thousands of people to do some to a common project is very important. Having accountability is very important. Having metrics, financial performance, focusing on margins and profitability, that's important. But you can take it to an extreme level where that's that becomes like rather than that being the way that you measure whether your engine is humming, like, you know, it becomes like the exhaust coming out of the tailpipe. You're like, okay, we must be going fast because we're producing all this profit. But it's very easy to tip over from that to say, actually, instead of trying to go fast, let's just try to produce as much exhaust as possible. Right. And that's where it gets dangerous because then it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Aren't there a lot of ways to kind of cheat a little bit and extract a little, you know, extract a little profit now at the expense of in the future? And the, and the academic, I mean, now I know a lot about this problem. In the academic literature, it's very clear that whenever you shift a company's like investor base from slightly more long-term to slightly more short-term, you see like very statistically predictable results. The stock price tends to go up in the short term, but down in the long term. So you're borrowing basically from the future. Uh, investment in R&D goes down. Investment in employees goes down. Inequality between the top and bottom of the company goes up. Executive compensation goes way up. And the timing of the executive compensation always tends to be correlated with the big bump. So it's just, it's it's a way of cannibalizing the company's future and you don't even realize that you're doing it. It's just it's all this pressure. So I didn't know a lot about the problem at the time. I just I heard about it from so many people, and I knew from so many entrepreneurs that this is what they were f- fearful about. And I felt like, well, we really ought to do something about that. That doesn't make sense to me that we run this this way because long-term thinking is so valuable, because having a multi-stakeholder perspective is so important for long-term value creation. Like It's just very clear studying the problem that this is important. And so now going back to 2010, um, I wanted to give people suggestions for, for the direction we should take our movement in. We had this nascent movement that was bubbling up. And I, was, you know, I felt like a lot of responsibility to kind of point us in the right direction. So I, I wrote a whole chapter of Lean Startup, the least read chapter by far, the last one. So if you get all the way to the end, you get my reflections on like stuff that other people should do. It's like, okay, as a, here's what we should work on. And we got to reform education. We got to reform investment. We got to do this research. It's just like trying to show uh, future directions. I want to go reread that that chapter. It's, yeah, go it's almost kind of the academic PhD work is ten years ahead of the actual market, <laughs> but you can't almost map. You know, AI in tw- two thousand six was going to hit a groove in two thousand sixteen. So I want yeah, to go exactly. back and read those. Yeah, that, go, that go, chapter. go check it out. We'll see. We'll see whether it stands the test of time. And actually, a lot of the stuff, like you know, there's a guy, an incredible professor at Harvard Business School named Tom Eisenman. He, he absolutely has like led the charge to reforming how uh, entrepreneurship is taught in business schools, which is like one of, my, one of my big bugaboos. And just idea after idea after idea in that book, people have run with. 
But I, well, the very last thing I suggested is somebody should really build a long-term stock exchange or LTSE in which, because in, in Silicon Valley, people are like, well, the reason it's this way is because that's what Wall Street wants. Everyone's like, well, that's what Wall Street wants. Investors want that. We have no choice. And I was like, that doesn't make sense. Why would investors want to lose money? If companies are distracted from their fundamental purpose of serving their customers, then they're going to be less valuable over time. And most investors are long-term investors. Most people are saving for retirement in pension funds and institutions, endowments. Why would they want companies to be run badly? That, I was like, that, I, must, I must be mistaken. Was there a shift in, in time 30 years ago, 20 years ago that created that, that, uh, that arc that you're talking about that you could academically study of the yeah, there's a, there's, and, a, there's a ton there's a ton of literature to it. You know, people was, kind of, was it that way in the '60s or '70s? Like Toyota, I know is Japanese, but I mean, yeah, they no, had, it, it's been a big change over the course of a hundred years. You know, if you mm -hmm. look at the post-war period and the and the kind of broadly shared prosperity of most of the 20th century, those investors and CEOs had a very different view of what the purpose of a corporation was. Um, I, w I don't want to. I don't want to be. I don't want to romanticize that period because there was significant problems, and especially when we start talking about inclusion, uh, there were significant, significant people being excluded. But like there was a sense of civic responsibility and what we would now call a multi-stakeholder, multipolar view of the world that shareholders were but one stakeholder of a corporation, and the purpose of a corporation was not just to narrowly focus on the interests of shareholders, but rather to invest in its communities and its employees. And if you read like Peter Drucker. One of the great 20th century management thinkers. Right. You know, he's just like very clear that what like what is a corporation? Its purpose is to create a customer. How does it create a customer? It's by investing in employees. Like so a company makes money because employees serve customers. So the like the fact that there's shareholders involved, that's like very much an output. Mm -hmm. And the idea that shareholders should have the primary, should be considered the primary like customer of a corporation, the primary purpose of it. He viewed as totally backwards. So that's like that's like a very 20th century view, and you know a lot of people blame Milton Friedman for this. You know that's kind of an intellectual shift that happened in the late 70s, early 80s, towards companies as um, kind of legally and kind of ethically being bound to serve shareholders in a more narrow way, and that coincided. Again, I don't want to criticize. Like that coincided with a period where you had a lot of companies that were in fact very badly mismanaged. They were run by old boys clubs. There was no outside accountability. And the kind of the early corporate raiders, what we would now call corporate activists, like did a real service in busting open some of those companies to bring real new modern ideas in and, and bring, make them amenable to technology. So there was kind of like a need for uh, a purging of some of those older behaviors. So like, so there's, there's like change happens for a reason and, and I, don't get, I don't want to romanticize what was before. But now we, that put us on a path of um, a, a very narrow conception of what a corporation is for. The idea that shareholders should have a say in governance, which I think is a good idea, got taken to mean that shareholders should have the primary role in governance, and mm. that you know that CEOs and boards are just there uh, to do you know what they want in a very narrow way. That gave rise to a lot of companies that just you know I like this. I won't name any companies, but you've had these companies where they have like ten CEOs in eight years and just constant churn at the top. You have this this issue where. Uh, activists will sometimes come in and, and borrow money, launch a campaign against a company where their, their, their goal is not to make the company more efficient or to get it to do any specific thing, but simply to have it buy back the shares to raise the share price so that their short-term campaign can turn a profit. And, you know, there's like, there's like a lot of these things. Just, these are symptoms of something gone wrong. This doesn't make sense. This isn't actually like I get that someone's making money from it. So if you kind of have like a real panacea view of capitalism that if anyone's making money, it's always, it's always value being created. 
then maybe it's okay. But if you have any more nuanced view of economics, if you fundamentally believe that wealth is created by voluntary exchange of value, so any kind of deception, fraud, you know, misalignment, like those can actually be to value destroying activities, even if somebody's making money. Like if you have even the tiniest inkling of that idea, you can see that many of these companies are simply being mismanaged. Now we've kind of taken it the whole way. They're being mismanaged, not because they're an old boys club, they're being mismanaged because now they're being run by committee and there's no longer any real vision. It's hard to sustain leadership at the top. CEO positions are revolving door. Executive compensation is out of control. Right. And, you yeah. know, always it didn't problems. take but 30 seconds to think about how, yeah, you can, you can uh, kind of like oil wildcatting, just drill the well and move on yeah. as an investor, as a shareholder, um, as a major shareholder. But yeah. But so yeah. I was having lunch. This is early. And so, so I decided to, to turn this into a company. Uh, after the book came out, because no one, no one took me. You might be surprised. No one took me up on my offer to build a new stock exchange. So I was like, well, it was an idea that like wouldn't leave me alone. I literally couldn't sleep. It was just like one of those things that just stuck with me. And I was like, why is no one doing this? Why doesn't this exist? It seems like it should exist. You know, it's like my cocktail party conversation for years. I'd be like, hey, I had this idea. People should try this, and it was super polarizing. And we'll get to that. But but let me tell you the story. So I did this. I had years of research. Where I was just meeting people, asking them, hey, teach, teach me about public markets. Teach me about stock exchanges. So I had this lunch with a quantitative trader and then a long-term fundamentals trader, both at the same table. And the quantitative trader was explaining to me that he's very proud of himself. He's managed to get his average holding time across his whole portfolio. He ran a, it's a very big investment company. Their average holding time of public equities was 10 minutes. The average. 10 minutes because they're in holding and out, the stock holding of the stock company. for 10 minutes because they're trying to trade in and out for tiny 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 bits of advantage and leverage and if they hold the stock too long you know they view that they're vulnerable to something happening so that's like a quantitative trading strategy that's and the and the person sitting next to him was laughing because he's like that's funny uh we haven't traded yet this year we haven't found anything that we want to buy and we like all the companies we have we didn't want to sell any of them so it's like one guy's trading millions of times a day, one yeah. guy doesn't trade. And I was talking to them about this idea and we we're learning about you know what it is. And, and the quantitative guy was like, I just don't understand. Why do people get so upset about all this trading behavior? Why do they care so much about volatility? Like, it, you know, it doesn't matter. And I was like, well, do you understand that like if you were to hypothetically, I'm just like, imagine a day where you engineered a short against a company and now the stock is down 25% and you're making a killing. And you could just see the big grin on his face. He's like, yeah, this is a great day, right? Do you realize that the next day, thousands of managers who work at that company are coming into the office and they're freaking out because the stock price is down and now we need to change the company strategy and whatever. And he looked at me like I was nuts. He's like, why would they do that? This is just a synthetic thing that had to do with the arbitrage and the liquidity this. And he's like, that doesn't make sense. And he'll never forget this. He's like, when I short cattle futures, the cows don't care. And I'm like, yeah, but these are human beings. Their livelihood is tied up in the stock price and they're taking instructions from you. And he's like, well, that's really dumb. They shouldn't do that. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm just telling you. And to him, a, a company is just a symbol on a screen. It's just a ticker symbol. It's not an organization filled with human beings. And so we've kind of weak. Trading and liquidity and markets used to be a way to facilitate what they call capital formation which you and I would just call building companies, right? So it used to be that the primary purpose of the investment infrastructure was to make sure that people had crazy new ideas, had the funding to create new growth for our society. And trading and liquidity and all the, all the secondary effects were like 
just that secondary. It's like that's the this is the dog and that's the tail. And now it's like trading and financialization has become so big. It's almost like we've reversed that polarity. And now that's considered the primary purpose of markets and capital formation, entrepreneurship, investment. That's almost considered like a separate thing that, you know, yeah, those are the kids are doing the crazy thing in San Francisco, but the real work is in is in trading. So it's just, I think we've kind of gotten a little bit out of balance as an economy about why we have financial markets. So anyway, so, so you know, and I, after, after years of exploring this and, and seeing the polarizing reaction that it got, I decided, you know, if no one else is going to do this, I'm going to have to give it a try. And, you know, and now almost nine years later, here we are. It's, and it's still, <clears throat> fast forwarding to, you know, two weeks ago, it's still the beginning and yet huge stake in the ground. And I can't, I couldn't commend you enough for uh, nine years in. I mean, it's, and, and this, this is the, that's the, the toll for really massively significant ideas. And that's just what it costs. Ways. Yeah. It is very different than kind of the lean startup. Um, idea of starting super small and iterating um starting with a, a mm -hmm. complete mvp and iterating what what would be the mvp or minimum viable product for something like ltsc or, or or did you say all right this is one of those ideas where i'm just gonna have to put this out there for years and years before um before we can have an mvp yeah, it's it's funny because that like some of the common things I hear about lean startup is you can't do MVP if it's highly regulated. You can't do it if it requires a ton of money up front. You can't do it if it's going to take a long time. And I've always, you know, I'm the advocate, so it's my job to say I don't know if that's really true. You know, actually, if you can go faster, if you can learn faster than your competitors, it doesn't matter how fast or slow things are in any absolute sense or how expensive they are in an absolute sense. And you know, so so I was like, oh, this is a chance to like put my put my money where my mouth is actually like try it in a situation that is simultaneously slow highly regulated and very expensive to get started but i don't think we could have done this without lean startup i feel like this is like a project that required my whole life's knowledge and wisdom to do um this the thing that people are now commending us for we we just got this as i don't know if we've actually said we just got sec approval to uh, begin the operations uh, of the exchange. So we've, we've joined the same regulatory category as NYC and NASDAQ. Uh, first time like a new, like a truly new listings uh, model has right. been, been created really, really since the creation of NASDAQ. And how long ago was that? That's in the late 60s. So 50 years yeah. and wow. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a, you know. Huge moment, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big deal and, and I don't, you know, I'm of course I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm on to the next thing, like next problem we got to solve in this. But right. you know, when we pause and slow down for a minute to say, "Wow, that's that's a profound thing." Um, this is not the first thing that we tried to do. See, like the overnight success is ten years in the making, like any overnight success. So we've had tons of experiments and failed experiments um, that we were able to learn a lot from. And I remember. Um, explaining to people like we almost we, one of the previous experiments we almost got to the finish line we got like basically as close to the finish line as you can possibly get what like it's like you fumbled the ball on the one yard line and and the guy took it back for a touchdown the other way it's like that it was that bad and i remember before i knew that was going to happen when it seemed like it was going well i remember I would always tell people listen remember the purpose of this activity is not just to win it's to learn we're trying to figure out what is going to be required to get regulatory approval to get a customer to yes to do this reform 
And so we have to build the experiment for learning purposes. Not, And that was so hard for me and for my team because, of course, when somebody takes such a long time, you're like, well, it, what's a few weeks here and there? You know, so, so it takes a few weeks. And we've already been at it for multiple years. Like, no, every day counts. Runway matters. Like, if this doesn't work, we got to have enough runway next to try the next thing. And so um, like in, if you look at the arc of the company, like in a lot of situations, the time between pivots goes down because not only when you have a big setback, you have to pivot. Um, for people who didn't catch the last episode, pivot is a change in strategy without a change in vision. So we've been focused on this vision of changing the world in a very specific way for all this time. Mm -hmm. But our specific strategies changed a bunch of times. And now we have you know tons of customers who have signed up. We've had you know tons of people using our software. We've got tons of investors who've signed signed up to join the coalition. So like now we have real traction. But that's a recent phenomenon. We had a lot of years in the desert. And what we had to do was be really disciplined about extracting every ounce of learning. It's like you, you're in a desert and you come across a tiny oasis with a little water in it. It's like, we got to store up every ounce of water here to be ready to survive to the next thing. And a lot of people who this was their first startup, you know, we had to bring in a lot of domain experts. So like our team is a funny mix of former, it's like basically former and future entrepreneurs. So people who have like started their own company could easily start another company again, but chose to do this instead because they believe in the need to change the ecosystem. And then a bunch of like technical experts that are required for all, think about all the like regulatory. So we had people right, from banking right. and people from the legal community, people who worked in treasury, people who worked at the exchanges before. So like a lot of experts who've never been in a startup before, this is their first time. So for the people for who it's their first time, having those failures and setbacks framed properly allowed them to like be like, oh, now I get it. Okay, and then they, for the next person that joins, they're the ones saying, no, 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 listen, these are our values here. We gotta go quickly, we gotta be transparent. We gotta, you know, like they start to really internalize it. So without Lean Startup, I don't think we could have, uh, we could, we, we, we would, I would, actually I could be, I can say with complete certainty, we would have run out of runway before we ever got to this point. We had to really, we, we, this is a project that is vigorously opposed. It has actual people who don't want it to happen, who make a lot of money from the status right. quo and who are not right. happy about it. So they have taken their their best shots. They have tried to to shut us down on multiple occasions. And if we they expected that we would die from what they did, and only because we were built in this different way that they didn't anticipate, are we even alive now? And it's almost like I'm not sure if they had a plan B. Although I shouldn't say that. I don't want to jinx it. If they're right. listening right now, they probably do have a plan B, and they're like, "Ha ha!" Now we really got them. But no, but it's similar to it's, it's so interesting. Nassim Taleb's uh, anti fragile That's concept right. of. You know, the opposite of fragile isn't robust. It's something that actually gets, isn't just a degree of less fragile, but it actually gets stronger. The more you kick it, the more that it uh, hits roadblocks. And and the best startups embody that to where, yeah, yeah it's, 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 got, it's, a, strong, it's a little stronger. bit Nietzschean, which I guess, I guess is why startups have so many like overman theory people running <laughs> around. We can't, we can't help it. Yeah. Well, it's uh, for listeners. Yeah. Do you mind telling a little bit more about the overman, superman? Oh no! Concept? I mean, just I, I think most people are familiar with Nietzsche saying that 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 just does not kill you makes you stronger, and uh, you know, like he, I mean, he was a very very insightful philosopher, but he also, you know, he was he found the idea of like greatness and the great man uh, a very seductive idea, and so there's a lot of people in the entrepreneurial community who, who they really buy into this idea that like fundamentally the right person with the right vision and the strength of character and the the will you know what what Nietzsche would call the will to power which now that phrase is a little bit dubious because of its historical connotations but it's the right concept for what people believe so we got to talk about it uh, that such a person can like can shape the world to their ends 
And there, you're the second guest that's brought up will to power. Yeah, I mean, it's a very common idea that floats around around the entrepreneurial. It's a dangerous idea, and we had to be careful with it because there is an element of it which is true. I, I think this is. I can't remember who told me this. I think this is part of Mark Andreessen's pitch about entrepreneurship that, like, the world is more susceptible to individual persistence than most people realize. Like, if you really are willing to stick with something for a very long time and really work at it, like in a certain way, like the world, the world, the, the seas will part, and the world will accept your new thing. And that, I mean, I think that's just a true fact. That's certainly been my my lived experience. Now, the the, the dangerous part of it is if you let that go to your head and say, well, therefore I can kind of do whatever I want, especially as people become successful, they become wealthy, they become powerful, they have political influence like that, you know, then then the kind of corresponding idea that if you have that kind of, that, if that power idea is true, it also means we have a moral responsibility to use that power in, in very specific ways, I think. Uh, Nietzsche would have thought that was weakness and, you know, and therefore I'm not an overman, but okay, fine. Uh, I think, you know, if we're going to live, we're going to live in a in a civilization, it's got to have a foundation of reciprocity and uh, and um, and common binds that that tie us together. Right. If you if you allow that to fray, you're in big trouble. And if you want evidence, just look around. Um, so so anyway, so I think that's kind of like this is part of the debate, like at the heart of the soul of uh, like the entrepreneurial community. What are we really going to stand for and be part of? Uh, I think we're going to have to grapple with this. That like you know. We want a like more pop version of it with great power comes great responsibility, right? I think I, I think I saw that in a movie somewhere, right? So so you know, but like that's like kind of a cliche idea, and yet it's 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 something we're we're struggling with as a community. So w one of the one of the things that that I you know ask each guest is what's a topic you think a lot about but rarely get a chance to to talk about, and and this might actually be something that you talk a lot about internally at at LTSE, mm -hmm. um, but I'm really interested to know how you build a company that is you know for the long term what are the things that you've learned to actually tactically implement into the long-term building of of ltsc yeah yeah i've been thinking a lot about the questions that i get asked by entrepreneurs you know often are about like there's kind of this cliche idea that startups are a marathon not a sprint but it's like a marathon of sprints, where like you're constantly sprinting, but somehow you have to still stay at marathon pace. So people have some kind of loose idea that that startups have to be sustainable. But then, like, what what does that mean practically? Uh, it, that's been on my mind a lot, and and we've confronted that a lot at LTSC because we there was a project. I mean, first of all, we put long term in the name of the company to <laughs> remind everybody that this is not a quick win. We're not gonna have some app that's gonna chart to number one on the app store like right away. Like, you know, this is not, it's not Flappy Bird, okay? This is gonna be hard. No disrespect to Flappy Bird, it's a fun, <laughs> very fun game. Um, but that this is gonna take a long time. It's gonna be vigorously opposed. You know, we make sure our investors understand that employee. So, so how do we do that in a sustainable way? And then we also, you know, even compared to a lot of other companies that had the overnight success take 10 years, we have an unusually um, low number of intermediate milestones to celebrate. You know, so like when you're in a regulatory process, you're really very limited in what you can say publicly. You don't get a lot of positive feedback from the regulators that you can share or that anyone really understands. You think you're on track, you think it's going well, but it's very hard to know. It's a very human thing. It's not like, you know, you're not watching a graph go up and to the right. It's not like, can't look at how many downloads you got. There's, there's no vanity metrics really. You You have to, 
you have to sustain and be disciplined on the basis of your own. And like it really forces you to be internally disciplined. You can't rely on any external factor. And then, yeah, you have to be built for a marathon of sprints. There's no, there's no other way around it. So, so we've thought a lot about that in terms of the culture of the company that you were like- Marathon of sprints, that is, yeah, yeah interesting. Uh, very very challenging. But it's interesting, like, and this kind of goes a little bit with the kind of overman theory we we're talking about before. There is a real belief you know, in the valley that entrepreneur, like, like, like there's, a, like, I think, a good idea, which is entrepreneurship is uniquely difficult. So you got to be really tough to do it. I mean, that is true. It's very hard. Um, uh, startup teams are superhumanly productive beyond anything you see in traditional organizations. And I think that's true. I mean, I, if you've never been, you've never been part of a true startup and seeing that like intense productivity, like what you can get done in a weekend, what you can get done in a day, like when you're truly motivated, when people really are transparent with each other, where there's true vision and mission alignment, you just, you can do the impossible, you can get stuff done at a crazy rate. And that the people who work in startups naturally work hard. Like it's not a, you can't slack off, you're, you're you and you're, you know, there's a kind of a band of brothers effect where it's like you, you're in the, you're in the trenches together and everyone's got to pull their weight. And if someone's not pulling their weight, like it can blow up the whole thing. So, so that's all true. But then people, I think, then take that to the next level to say, well, uh, to be a startup, you have, to, you have to work at a crazy number of hours. You have to make sure that you live a very unhealthy lifestyle. You have to pull all-nighters all the time. You got to like be mean to your employees. You got to squeeze all the, you know, like- Sacrifice everything yeah, else. Yeah, that's kind of like, you can have no life. You can't have work-family balance. That's like a big company thing. That's for lazy people. Whatever. That's, that's, that's kind of this like, I, I'm like, it's not a very, it doesn't make sense to me. And so- you know, here's, I mean, to me, and to me, here's the logic of it. We all know that the code you write in the third day of a three consecutive all-nighters is bad code. You should, you shouldn't write it. You should go home, get some sleep, come back, the problem will be solved. So like, it's very rare that actually borrowing against those reserves and going into that really unsustainable place is in fact a good call. It causes you to make suboptimal decisions. And that's true for a lot of things that people uh, glamorize, I think, inappropriately. Having no life, having no, no outside interests, having no hobbies, never reading, having no friends, not being connected to your society, even just like simple things like not being plugged into your pop culture, not knowing what's going on in the news, like that kind of like monomania, that's not healthy. That doesn't lead to good ideas. That doesn't foster creativity. That's not I don't think that's actually helpful in building companies. I think you're much better off with employees who are networked, who meet other people, who can like that's like how they can recruit people into the company. They can be evangelists for the company out in the broader world. They have real world knowledge. Like some of our best employees, you know, didn't come from elite backgrounds. They weren't didn't live a super privileged upbringing. Like they have actual like real world experience. You know, they've lived in the real world. They know what is actually going on. And they bring that perspective that's super valuable. So you don't want to like cut people off from that. You see the companies that are kind of run like a cult of personality. And it's like, a, it's really like a, a they've super secret. Everything is super secret. They're, everyone's inside the special club. Like you start to get a real bubble mentality and you can have group think and that can be very deadly. And all these things, people say, well, we can't afford that. That's a luxury we can't afford. In a startup, we can't afford any luxuries. And I think that's true. Like I, I think in a startup, you really have to be laser focused on expending your energy on only the things that matter. But the logic of that fact, I think cuts the other way. It, in a startup, we can't afford not to squeeze every ounce of productivity we can. 
So we got to we have to be the most research oriented. We got to use the very best of best practices. So if if it's true that like people getting good night's sleep leads them to be more creative day in and day out, we need that. We need every ounce of creativity we can get. We can't afford like it's the corporate drones that can afford to just kind of routinely crank out code, whatever. We need people's actual creativity. So so building a set of practices, building a company culture that can sustain that level of productivity over time, and that's been one of our obsessions. Uh, at LTSE, and I think it's you know very evident in the pace of work that we do, the quality of the work that we do. Uh, I, you know, I put that up against anybody. Yeah, well, to build on that, it's you know how how many times has each listener out there? How many times have you ever gotten a great epiphany idea sitting at your computer in yeah, the office? Never. It is in that that kind of uh, absence from the quote unquote uh, work environment that. And said another way, you know, a balance of of an absence and presence uh, in front of in front of that productivity machine that is, you know, your computer and and uh, what are supposed to be these productivity machines of of you know real estate, the office, mm-hmm. and yet some of the most productive things that ev- I'm sure everyone listening can think about the the beers with colleagues that led to this conversation, the uh, hike. With their dog that led to this epiphany, totally. And and you you have these. Um, every one of us have these specific examples where that's true. Maybe in the last th- thirty days, and yet it's not really incorporated into um, how. No, how if, we I would work. say if you're in a job where you haven't, you don't have that experience in the last thirty days. Like something's wrong. Your natural creativity is being suppressed, and you need to get out of that environment. Like yeah. seriously, that's how that's how strongly I feel about it. Like if you don't have a job that's actually creatively challenging. It's 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 boring. It's it's almost inhuman. I, I don't think I, I think it's a tremendous waste of people's talent and potential to have them do jobs that machines could do. So we gotta we gotta leverage the fact that humans are creative and we gotta just embrace that that creativity is inside every person. And we gotta and it's an if you actually build a culture like that, it's a huge recruiting advantage. Right. I mean, we're able to recruit incredible people because this is the best our our responsibility. We talk in our meetings, it's important to me that this is the best job you've ever had. So if there's anything here that's like bothering you, that's suboptimal, that's not right, we're going to fix it. But the ca- my favorite phrase is, is the cavalry's not coming. Yeah. No, there's no one else going to fix it. Look around the table. If, some, if something's wrong, we're going to fix it ourselves. We, we got to do it ourselves. And so, you know, like obviously we let people manage their own. We have a mandatory vacation policy. So we don't track vacation days. You can take whatever vacation you need, but, it, but you're required to take vacation. You can't. We don't want anybody like in the office too long, you know. We don't have mandatory office hours. It's like people don't if people don't come into the office at all. Really don't care, right? So long as they're being productive, and it forces the company and all its managers to start to ask, well, how do we assess if people are being productive? Like that's really the question. It's like our teams being productive. If they are, the the way that productivity is being accomplished, even if it's unconventional, is totally fine. And so that way we're able to like you know this is a project for grownups. So we have a lot of people with kids. Uh, you know, people have kids. Like their responsibility is to their kids. So we're going to have a rigid work schedule that makes it hard for them to do the stuff they want to do with their kids. That doesn't make sense. How does that make them better employees? That either like makes them more stressed out or it dumps the responsibility of taking on onto somebody else. And now they, they got this disconnect and, and this values of misalignment in their own life. And that's terrible. You know, we, we, we insist everybody take, um, parental leave if they need it. I, t- I took a really long by Silicon Valley standards, parental leave when my kids were born. That like I mean I even got some nasty notes from you know investors and partners like what are you doing how how long I believe I don't remember now I think it was like four months or you no know, it's like it was significant 
uh, because I was like, look, I'm this is my responsibility to be home with my kids. And look, I was still available. If I, you know, I was on email. It's like you can't, I didn't want to be completely disconnected from the company, but like I made a point of like I have my email autoresponder on. I have no meetings scheduled. If someone needs me, like there's an escalation procedure, but it's not as easy as it normally is. And I did that. It was actually several of my female employees asked me to do it. They said, please make a point of doing this and make sure people know that you did it because that that is going to help us for recruiting. It's going to help us prove to people that this is a family-friendly company right. and the kind of place that people who want to have kids or have kids you know, can work. And it's been totally true. It's been been a huge advantage. And and it seemed like a long time at the time. No one even remembers. Right. Our head of engineering wrote a blog post about when he took paternity leave. I think he also took he might have taken eight weeks, twelve. I don't remember how many weeks he took, but you know he wrote about how that was essential, and why and more people, more men should do it. And at the time, it was like, oh my god, how are we going to live for months without our VP engineering? It would never. And I was like, it was fine. And we, if you run a competent company, you don't need to be there. And it's better for. I mean, there's so many threads of logic in this that I that I see that it's not just like oh we're taking a stab at something new and maybe it experimentally you know blows up, but it's actually. There's there's so many threads and logic of of just even balancing of of you work on a startup and doing something as simple as gardening. Yeah. You learn so much from creating and other forms that you weave into uh to something as as massive and significant of, of having a child. You weave so much of that into your your professional life of realizing just how amazing the virtue of patience is it's it's incredible or, yeah and or, like i yeah i yeah, I, like, I, I would rather have employees that have outside interests and hobbies and and are passionate about something because that they bring that learning back in i mean we have we have a very diverse team by by silicon valley standards and that's no coincidence when we really focus on that as, as a virtue and um you know we have several several um Employees with ties outside of the country, so they'll you know they'll return home you know to be with their family or to vacation and like, and we've had like numerous business benefits that have like inadvertently come from that. You know, it turns out that you know that you know we're, we're trying to meet like every unicorn in the world, right? So like, it you know it turns out that they while they're in country, they make meet someone who works at the company, whoever, and that makes a connection that's that's really valuable. It turns out that you know we we've taken advantage of a lot of uh, remote talent. In some of the places where we have employees that have, uh, um, you know, personal connections there, and so we're able to to recruit people that are really amazing, and and it improves our cost structure. It's just like all like, yeah. I get just like all these advantages. People have like unusual hobbies that then pay dividends. You know, it turns out to be a point of connection with a potential customer that they have a, a com they have something in common. It just you're and you're constantly helping people level up their own skills. So like yeah. when I interview employees. And this is true in my startup, in my personal life, like everybody who works for me, I always ask, what can I do to help you advance your career goals? Like five years from now, where do you want to be and what, how can I be your advocate in making that happen? I want the people that work for me to be developing their skills. I want them to leave at a way higher level than they came in. I want them to remember this as the best place they ever worked. I want them to take our values to the company that they're going to start, you know, one day. Like I don't I don't resent that. I admire that. I want that. I want people to to have that opportunity and that again that becomes a recruiting advantage. It's a reason why like it's people who are top 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 talent, they're 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 not going to be constrained. They're not going to take a job that is going to set them, you know, push them down. They're going to want to take a job that's going to be a launching pad to something else amazing. And we want those people. So like yes, there's a risk that they might leave and do the amazing thing, but like 
that's great. Then they're going to take our values and mission, you know, into right. the world with them. So that's going to be that's going to be even better. Well, and it's and there's such a um, the other law that uh, logic is just there's a people are craving this and and they're craving it not knowing um, that they're craving a workplace that allows them to take four months of of paternity leave that they don't know that they're they might not be able to articulate that's what they're craving while they're at. Um, you know, big company X that has so much that doesn't make sense to them. Yeah. And and yet you you give them these breadcrumbs of these really one self-justifying, just it's just great to spend that amount of time with with your newborn. But then it has the amazing after effect and and reflective effect of holy crap, this is really rare. Yeah. And this how you do anything is how you do everything. So if the company is going to pursue uh or or perceive this very uniquely, then they're probably going to perceive, oh wow, vacation is perceived uniquely. Or mm -hmm. you want you encourage uh hobbies and, and interests outside of work. And it's for for listeners, maybe not in, in the valley, um, or that have that haven't worked at a startup, um that this isn't, you know, groundbreaking thoughts, but they are rare in a val in a environment that actually, truly, in many ways, glamorizes all nighters. Glamorizes. Yeah. I remember a uh, this concept of uh, an investor brought us the concept of a war room to fix something was seven days in the conference room. Um, yeah, nobody to, leaves. To fix, no one leaves, and and people, uh, fit, and and. There is a part of me that actually sees the fun in that. But it is. It's, I actually think part of the reason people do it is it's actually it's like the adrenaline rush. It's fun. You feel important. It's good. And and there are times where we have to work hard. I mean, I don't. I'm not going to lie. Like I, I've pulled all nighters. Like I've we had stressful moments. But I think the key is simply to be be serious about sustainable. Is, is this actually a sustainable? Approach? Yeah. Like if if you can only fire this gun like three times in your life, right? In the life of a company, is this one of those times? Right. And like, what really is the consequence? Like, I think people confuse something's really important with the best and most urgent way to solve this problem is to go crazy on it. Like, a lot of times, it's it's actually more about focus. So, like, we've had other times when it's not that people need to work harder or longer. It's just hold on, we need to really clear the decks and get everyone focused on this specific thing. Now, the war room, the 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 ceremony, and the 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 the, the noise of that experience has these side effects that are really important. Like that, it's a way of signaling that something's important. It's a way of getting everyone focused on one thing. It's about say saying, look, anyone who's in the way of this person, get out of the way. And so, you can accomplish those things in a more humane way. As long as you're clear about what you're doing and why, I mean, I remember one of the things uh, we're talking about folk wisdom. You learn as an entrepreneur. Someone once told me, the only way to launch a product is to go to a trade show. I said, why? I said, because that's the only way to set a deadline where there's consequences if you miss the deadline. It's the only way to get people to focus on uh, folk. And it was like, it's part of this older management idea that, like, you know, the engineers are basically morons. And they'll never, you know, they just, they don't understand the business. And just like everything's about tricking them into doing what you want them to do and trying right. to come. And it's like, it's a very dishonest and non transparent way of working. Well, and even the concept of, of a boss is indicative of a system of mistrust. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's, it's completely wrong. You know, so, 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 but, but then like what I've tried to do with all these things is I like try to study, okay. Like when you're, when I was first an entrepreneur, I'd be like, well, that doesn't make sense. So we're not, we're not doing trade shows and we're not having deadlines. And then I'd be like, oh, but 
this product's not getting done. <laughs> like it does need to get done soon. And I'd be like, guys, why, why, what's, what's taking so long? And you know, and, and people would be like, well, you didn't, you said it wasn't that important. I'm like, when did I say that? He said, well, you not said there's not gonna be a deadline. So how important can it be? Like, okay, okay, right, right. So it just like, it forces you to be like, okay, what are we really trying to do, right? right? So we talked about last time about how to set a deadline, like how to be authentic about why the deadline matters, what are the consequences of it not happening? So it just requires a level of intentionality and thoughtfulness in management that I, I think is really good. It's actually helpful to everybody. And the flip side of it is it requires and allows a much higher level of personal responsibility for founders and for everybody on the team, if you'll share that with others. This is something I see a lot of first-time founders really struggle with. It's like, if you make a commitment or a decision as a founder, you have to learn to live with it. You, like I, I meet founders all the time who are like, they're upset. They're like, I didn't, you know, like a classic one is like co-founder equity split or like you give an employee, you pay them a certain amount. You're like, well, now I don't, I wanna undo it. I don't like it. It's like, well, did you make that decision? Did it seem like the right thing at the time? Okay, well, let's talk about your actual options. You can fire the person. They're like, but they've already vested a bunch of equity. I want that equity back. It's like, well, you can take it back. You actually, you do have that power, but are you gonna set a precedent that in your company, people lose even their vested equity if they displease right. you? Right. Are you ready to do that? And of course, I've had founders who are like, yeah, I've, I've seen it done. It's been done to me. I mean, I, like the worst stuff I've seen it happen. And I'm like, look. Talk you, about scorching the earth and absolutely, having absolutely no clue of what precedent that that's sad. Yeah, it's like, and listen, one day you're going to be on the receiving end of this. This is not this is not a good precedent for you to set for yourself. But the flip side is like, I've had to live with my own mistakes. I can't stand it. I understand. I'm like, yeah, the scorcher. It probably it feels very satisfying, and and yet the hard part about being a founder is you have to take response. There's nobody else to blame. You you made the choices. You had the imperfect information. You did the best you could. So you got to have compassion for yourself, and then you got to really ask yourself like is correcting the mistake what's the best way to correct the mistake like i'm going to learn from this mistake so like you know i, I once had a co-founder who just like what well, didn't didn't really pull their weight but like getting rid of them would have been more painful than keeping them around and i was like at the end the end of the day all that's really happened here is they have a little more of the company that i wish they did but you know Am I going to really care if I if I, this thing is a success and I make X? Will I be mad that I didn't make like fifteen percent more than X? No. So what am I really mad about? I'm like, oh, you know, like what am I really like? Do I really need to have a fight here? And and in this particular case, like you know, I just sucked it up and ate it, and I felt terrible, and I was like, I you know, I'm, I'm mad. But then you know, years later, they turned out to perform a really valuable service for the company. Was it worth all the equity that they got? No. But that wasn't the choice. I already made the mistake. Now the question is, given I've made that mistake, how do I make the best of it? How do I get, find the best thing for the company? And it's psychologically very unsatisfying. You just have to do it over and over again. I remember that's, that's the only way. And I remember taking a personality test that says, uh, one of my biggest flaws is I crave closure. Yeah. And and it, this is, yeah, the, these that's things so are true. really tough when you, you combine craving closure along with it. Uh, really resourceful way of getting closure in many situations or getting you know the a uh, solution and you have to you know surrender the the yeah. uh control of of a solution but it is it's the uh, it is the same thing for when a vp is gone for four months you don't know what the closure of that will be but then you experience and you realize oh my god the team elevated it's just like when the ceo yeah. you yeah. take off for four months that is one of the 
most amazing times for the team to elevate and you come back and you're like holy shit everybody's up to their game in a way that could only happen if you know there was a vacuum yeah. there and and you don't really know that that is possible until maybe you either see it or you you trust that it's like you know you don't know it's going to be productive for you to get eight hours of sleep you unless know. you know what it's like to to not get it but it's um but i yeah. think it's there is uh there is immense value diana chapman uh another amazing author was here um recently and she's, yeah, she's great she, the first commitment that they say in their book uh, 15 commitments of of conscious leadership is take 100 percent responsibility yeah it's like lesson number one it's so valuable it's so hard uh, one of my favorite managers once told me that in any given situation there's between two people who are working on something together there's 200 percent responsibility to go around so like <laughs> so you like it, even if the other person is taking zero percent responsibility that doesn't mean that you you, you still yeah. can take your hundred. Your hundred percent is still available at all times, and you can just you can do it. And it's so easy to say. And That's so good. So, do you mind saying so that again? To, oh, just that in any given situation, that, that between two people working on something together, there's two hundred percent responsibility to go around. Uh -huh. So even if the other person is taking zero percent responsibility and causing all the dysfunction, that doesn't mean you should take zero percent responsibility too and, and reciprocate. Hundred percent responsibility is still available for right. you. You're you're in control of your hundred percent that pie. Uh, at, at at all times, and yeah. it's so easy to say, and it's so hard to do. And part of it is like we want we want revenge when someone's like doing something we perceive as wrong. Like we want to fight them, and you know, and and it's, it's a very natural impulse. And it's kind of from a like evolutionary psychology point of view, it's sensible. If you know that everyone has this impulse for revenge in them, it's creates a deterrent for you to treat them badly. So like, you know, like it's a very, it's right. like the whole thing. Right. The system is the way it is for for perfectly good reason. And yet, in a modern context, I mean, that just causes so much suffering, uh, so much suffering and pain. And I, I found, you know, and being a parent obviously helped me a lot with this. You know, depending on your, you know, when you're, so when you're talking about dealing with with this personally, you can kind of frame it in a spiritual context, right? Everybody can have their own spiritual practice of what they believe, metaphysically speaking, and you can, you know, like most spiritual traditions have some kind of idea that you're not really in control of what happens. Right, that's like very helpful. I found you can you can turn it over to a higher power. You can say like it's just this is just like actually just a statement of fact. You are in fact not in control of what happens, and you have to be willing to accept that. Well, you know, as you and I have talked about, and and I would love to hear your experience of doing this too. Managing your own psychology, finding equanimity for yourself is one thing, but creating that for a team mm. is like a next level challenge because you can't assume that everyone on the team has the same spiritual belief. Or practice. In fact, what are the odds? Very, very unlikely. So you can't appeal to any higher, any specific higher power, right? You can't say like, "Well, Jesus says," or you know, like I'm Jewish. I give her like, "Well, in the Jewish tradition, everyone and people, my people on my team, are like, well, what's that to do with me, right?" Like, right. and if I come in, you think about all these like tech CEOs now. They're like way into meditation, or they go on a Vipassana retreat and they come back and they're like, "I had this great insight." It's like, well, I wasn't on the retreat. I don't believe in that. Why? Why? I don't care. So then, but that's like okay, still. Yet we nonetheless have to find some way to find shared sense of equanimity. So it like really forces you to say, what what can we appeal to? That is doesn't require too much metaphysics, right? But I think like I think there are still things that we can appeal to. Like we can we can just agree that it is a fact that there is an external truth that we don't control beyond us. That doesn't require any spiritual understanding. That's just look there there is an outside universe. We can feel it and experience it. 
and it doesn't care. It's indifferent to our beliefs and thoughts. Like it's right. just, it's still there. So we can all agree. And we can agree that yeah. the world is too complicated for us to be able to truly control. So we, we do the best we can. We play the probabilities, but then like, um, when I first became a parent, um, I, I read a story about, this is a horrible story uh, in Queens of um, someone's house was destroyed when a part fell off an airplane. They were under the path of an airplane in uh, coming out of JFK and it was a loose part and it fell and just destroyed their house. And I remember just being like so brutally upset by the story. So I was like, they were probably really good people. I bet they were great parents. I bet they did everything right. You know, just like, like right. but one day, a, something that had nothing to do with them in any way destroyed their house. It wasn't their fault. You get, there's no way you can blame the victim on this one. It's just completely random. And like that can just happen. That could happen at, to us at any time. So like if you really take that idea seriously, we have to find some way to deal with that fact. It's like a fact of human existence. And we have to be able to deal with that as a team. Right. Our best efforts might not be enough. Or we might succeed despite our best efforts to blow it. And like we don't know what's going to happen. But we can still stand for what's right. We can still put out a good, like be an avatar of goodness into the world, speak the truth be transparent, stand for, and like I, I used to tell my team in the early days, maybe we'll die trying, but our failure will inspire the next person to pick up the baton and they will solve the problem. Mm -hmm. Like even, so even still, we might yet, you know, have a positive impact on the world. So we have to focus on those things that we can control, how we, how we conduct ourselves, how, how we treat each other, how we treat our partners and allies and communities that that's what, that's what we can control. So let's, let's focus on that. Right. And that is, I mean, I think that's why the last, 5,000 years of, of uh, mythology has taken on this form of it, two, three billion people believe it, whether it's Eastern philosophy or mm -hmm. Western, that it's, um, you, know, you can't control what happens to you, but you can control how you react. Mm -hmm. And it is, um, and that's why it's, it's so interesting, the concept of taking 100% responsibility, because then you're, you're also taking the responsibility for things that you are in the previous sentence know that you couldn't control yeah but you're still taking responsibility because it's almost like you're leaning into this concept of i can take responsibility for everything that happens after this i should take responsibility for everything that happens after this and why not also envelop and take responsibility for what caused this to begin with? Because I probably was the biggest actor, especially as a founder, for incorporating, even if it is a piece of an airplane falling through your office. Um, that's a little bit, you know, harder to to take uh, responsibility for. But there are the metaphorical versions of that a shift in the market. Yeah. And the more that you take responsibility, I think it's why our human minds have adopted it at the scale of two, three billion people over the last few thousand years is because it's phenomenally powerful. Ironically, it's really powerful to say, actually, no, I'm going to take 100% responsibility for uh, everything that's, that is happening or has happened within our company mm -hmm. or within your family or within your life. It is, um, you know, I can't articulate nearly as well as as uh, Diana and her and her co-authors did in Fifteen Commandments of Conscious Leadership. But there is, there's so much power in this uh, voluntary kind of you know jumping on the grenade, that courage to voluntarily take that. That voluntary courage is what people around you want to be led by. Mm -hmm. And and it's it's actually less relevant of of the actual facts of how much responsibility is how much you could shirk 
um, or not. It's more of, holy shit, I actually really want to follow this person because they didn't have to do that. Right. And it's the clearer the scenario that you didn't have to do it, the the more courage and and the more virtue there there can be in in you actually just focusing on mm-hmm. the parts that you could control. Now the hard part is how do you do that without taking away the people that work for you's ability to do it too. Mm. Right. So I, I try to be really conscious about I will take responsibility for my part, but I will also create an opportunity for the person that works for me to take responsibility too. I won't say what you did didn't matter or didn't affect me in any way. I, like, I'll be completely honest, like the buck stops with me. So like, I mean, when we have a setback, like the first thing that happens in any team meeting with a setback is I have to be, say, listen, I, I bought it, I signed off on this plan, I thought this was gonna work and I was wrong. So that was my responsibility. Uh, and I don't say then there you, 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 it's just like I create a space for anyone else who wants to take that responsibility too, to kind of join me. And what's interesting to me is some people choose to step into that space and, and others don't. And you know, that's a development opportunity for them. And so then like, you know, as their manager, I can try to think about, okay, how do I help them, you know, take on that kind of owner's mentality, that founder's mentality and, and take more, take more responsibility. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard and it's, it's deeply human. And certainly as someone who got into this, cause I love technology, this is certainly not where I thought the path would lead. But if we want to build amazing things, we want to change the world, this is the way. Well, it is the, um, yeah, in many ways, the, the, this is the source. Um, that individual or collective psychology is the that's the that's the source in which creation <laughs> comes from. Well, Eric, thank you so much for uh, for coming by today for part two, and thank you so much for you know supporting the the podcast and the project uh, from from day one. And uh, I look forward to hopefully we'll get you to guest host an episode <laughs> or two. Uh, I'm looking if, forward to if it. you have the uh, curiosity. Thank you so much. We'll yeah, yeah, no, I appreciate it. Thank you for doing this and. And we were talking about this uh, uh, before the show, but it's it, you know it's just it's a rare thing for someone to to take an idea like this and really run with it and do it. And it's just been awesome to see the podcast grow and and the caliber of the guests that you're getting and and the response from from listeners. So uh, so I'm I'm grateful to have the chance to be part of it. And, and thanks everybody for listening. Well, I'm glad you encouraged it. Thanks so much, Eric. Chat soon. Hey, friends and listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to hear more of these types of conversations, go over to your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe or leave us a review. Good or bad, we love hearing from people that that appreciate this type of conversation and want more of it. You can also follow us on Twitter at GoBelowTheLine as well as see in our Twitter bio our email address for you to shoot us a note on any suggestions of guests or topics that we should cover. We read every single one, so... Thank you for those that have already sent those in. That's it for us today. We will see you next time on Below the Line. Below the Line is brought to you by Straight Up Podcasts.